0: Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today, I'm honored to welcome Dr. Nancy Collip to the show. Dr. Collip is Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine, a role she's held since 2015. She's also Director of the Emory Sleep Center in Atlanta and a past president of the AASM. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Collip, and Happy New Year.
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So the JCSM recently celebrated 15 years, and you worked with the journal's first editor, Dr. Stuart Kwan, and members of the editorial board to put together a special 15th anniversary collection. Tell me about this process.
1: Sure. The um, uh, journal clinical sleep medicine was actually started by the AASM in response to demands to have a journal that highlighted clinical sleep medicine to really aid practicing sleep medicine providers in um, providing the breast clinical care. Um, that was in 2005, started out under Stuart Kwan's editorship as a quarterly journal. And that year, about 20 articles were published. Um, now we're publishing about 20 articles a month and so uh, to celebrate the 15 years of existence, we pulled together this special edition. Um, in this edition, we really sought to highlight the depth and breadth of sleep medicine, as well as the most notable publications in the journal. And while our highest page views and citations are mostly from practice parameters and guidelines, for this edition, we really wanted to concentrate on like peer-reviewed original research papers the uh, the way we did that was the associate editors of the journal myself were given a list of the articles that had the most page views and um also that had the most citations and they ranked their top choices and then from that rank list we uh selected uh the variety of papers that are in the collection um to try to you know get a variety of topics. And the right number to choose seemed to be 15 since it was the 15 year (laughs) anniversary. So that's how we uh, that's how we got to to the group uh, in the collection that you'll see published soon.
0: So what a big change, though, from going from a quarterly journal to now a monthly journal.
1: Yeah, that, you know, I guess in growing any journal, it takes a while to get the submissions. um, But, you know. Year over year, we've had more and more submissions, and really 2020 is probably the largest number of submissions we've had yet. So it takes a while to grow a journal, but uh, this one seems to have done very well.
0: Hey, you found a silver lining to 2020. That's pretty pretty fantastic (laughs) to do that. (laughs) I guess people had extra
1: time sitting at home in their pajamas. There you go.
0: There you go. So we we wanted to highlight a few of the articles today that you had chosen for us, and I'm hoping that you might be able to provide us with a brief synopsis, and then maybe you can share with us what you thought made it impactful. So should we dive in? Sure. So the first one that you had chosen was about obstructive sleep apnea patients who CPAP and they gain weight. So this was the article called uh, The Impact of Treatment with Continuous Positive Airway Pressure on Weight in Obstructive Sleep Apnea. And this was actually written by Dr. Kwan and published in 2013. So this one um, kind of struck me when I was a resident with Dr. uh, Barb Phillips. I remember her telling me um, that some patients gain weight, some people lose weight with CPAP and I really didn't understand why. So can you please tell me what the study taught us and why you think it was important?
1: Sure, so um, this was a study that was kind of a knockoff from the APPLES study, which was uh, published prior to this. And the Apple study was a six-month randomized controlled trial that set forth to examine neurocognitive outcomes. And so what Dr. Kwan did was look at the data um, with regards to weight. So it wasn't the primary uh, part of the study. It was a secondary analysis. But they, in the group, they had um, weight measurements at study entry and then after six months. And in this study, the uh, patients were randomized to be treated with CPAP or something called sham CPAP. So... That I guess uh, people aren't familiar with sham CPAP. It's like CPAP with a bunch of holes drawn in the, or a bunch <laughs> of holes in the CPAP mask, so it can't deliver the adequate pressure. And um, that was the, the premise of the study. And the patients were, you know, kind of, I guess, what we'd say typical sleep apnea patients, um, male, middle-aged. Uh, they were predominantly Caucasian and obese. Um, And what was fascinating about this study was that um, the sham group actually lost weight. And the patients that were on CPAP actually gained a bit of weight. Um, On average, the sham group lost 0.7 kilograms. And the PAP group, on average, gained about a third, a little more than a third of a kilogram. The effect was not. Really altered by um, age, gender, race, their baseline BMI, the severity of their sleep apnea, or their Epworth scale. And what was kind of really interesting about it was um, the patients that were more adherent. So they looked at the more adherent versus the less adherent group uh, in the CPAP side. And the patients that were more adherent actually had more weight gain, so about a kilogram on average. Um, than the, the CPAP group that were less adherent. So using CPAP more seemed to result in more weight gain. And overall, only about 46% of the CPAP group actually met what we call CMS adherence, so they're greater than four hours, 70% of nights. And in the sham arm, only 25% hmm. met uh, the adherence criteria.
0: So it wasn't really a big deal uh, in terms of your um, ability to draw a conclusion that the treatment was suboptimal. Like you said, the the people who were more adherent to CPAP gained more weight.
1: Yeah, kind of weird, huh? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so did they have a theory for why this happens? I mean, is it is it kind of like um, you know those those guys with severe COPD and they have this huge metabolic drive? Is it kind of the same thing?
1: well they they don't know exactly um I should have mentioned in the beginning each of these papers actually has a commentary now in the in the anniversary collection that you'll see a commentary that was written by one either one of the associate editors or a member of the editorial board and in uh, the commentary that accompanied this paper, they noted you know subsequent articles as well since this one was published and the test of time has shown that this has really uh persisted and that most of the subsequent studies have shown that um weight gain does occur with CPAP there was a meta analysis published in 2015 of 25 trials that kind of confirmed this and so you know people have kind of looked for why this is and there's been a few studies that have looked at like any en- energy expenditure and it is shown that uh, resting 24-hour energy expenditure does seem to be higher in sleep apnea patients, including sleep energy expenditure. And so people have speculated that, you know, is it because of increased work of breathing, more arousals, increased in sympathetic nervous system activity? Uh, one of the things that the author speculated in this paper was, you know, they have people with sleep apnea have elevated inflammatory cytokines, which may be slightly anorectic. Um and, you know, the thing that was always, it really did change my practice when this came out, because I always used to tell patients like, oh, if you get on CPAP, you know, you're probably going to have so much more energy, you'll probably lose weight. I don't tell them that anymore. <laughs> and and studies would actually show just that baseline that PAP use doesn't seem to actually increase activity levels, unfortunately. So um, I think we still need to encourage our patients to uh, use their CPAP and Try to lose weight.
0: Do you know what I love? I love in the commentary that was written by Dr. Brown this this end quote. Yes, um, it was from it was some it was some play or something that said, "Gentlemen, progress has never been a bargain. You have to pay for it," and really kind of talks about how there's this give and take, which I thought was a really clever way of of summing it up.
1: Yeah, I thought that was a great quote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the caffeine study. So this was the one that was published in 2013. It was called Caffeine Effects on Sleep Taken at Zero, Three, or Six Hours Before Going to Bed. Uh, and it was written by Dr. Drake et al. And they looked at the effects of caffeine when when caffeine, oh, sorry, the effects of caffeine on sleep when caffeine was taken uh, either right at bed or three hours or six hours before bed. So what did this study show us?
1: Yeah, so this one was interesting. It actually had the top page views of... uh of the papers, um, oh wow. in JCSM, and it examined this caffeine question both from the subjective and objective measurement of sleep. And now, it only had twelve participants, um, but they were you know healthy normal sleepers who didn't excessively use caffeine. And what they did was they used ta- um, pills, so tablets, for, with had four hundred milligrams of caffeine. Um, versus placebo. And as you said, they they would take these tablets, they would actually take three of them um, at either six, three or zero hours prior to bedtime. And then that was randomized over four nights with washout nights in between. And they measured subjective sleep by having the participants fill out diaries. And they also used kind of a unique device, the Zio device, which I don't believe is uh, longer available, any longer available, but it was like a single EEG channel headband that actually had pretty good um, you know pr- validation data.: good, Yeah, validation yeah. data compared to polysomnography. Um, and that was what was used to provide the objective measures. And not surprisingly, there was a reduction in many of the parameters of sleep when um, the participants used the caffeine um total sleep time and latency to sleep were reduced subjectively um so by the diaries and objectively using the zeo total sleep time um wake time during sleep and sleep efficiency were reduced and even at six hours um the six hour one when they would take the tablet six hours total sleep time was reduced by an average of one hour over an hour so it shows pretty dramatic effects of caffeine, um, on sleep.
0: Yeah. I can't imagine taking that much caffeine (laughs) right before bed. I mean, just talking about it makes me feel kind of tachycardic, but
1: it's a lot
0: of caffeine, right?
1: Agreed. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I pretty much avoided afternoon myself.
0: (laughs) So do your patients believe you when you tell them not to have caffeine right before bed?
1: Some do, and some don't. Um, you know, everyone, uh, every sleep doctor has had a uh, patient say, oh, I, you know, I'll take espresso and fall right asleep. And that may be the case, but I suspect that uh, if you were actually going to look at their sleep, it probably wouldn't be as good as if they didn't take their espresso right before bed.
0: It is kind of fun to show them though, right? Like the guys that show up with their Mountain Dew uh, when they're in for their PSG, and, and they swig it right before they go to bed. And then you see a ton of arousals and a bunch of leg movements that kind of get better through the night. But, um, you know, I battle this one constantly. Mm-hmm. I Patients, like you said, are, are forever telling me, oh, no, I have my, you know, soft drink or whatever before I go. My husband does this. <laughs> so yeah. I'm clearly never going to win this argument. <laughs> 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 so let's talk about this next one. Uh, This uh, was published in 2014, and this is one that was entitled Sleep Apnea and 20-Year Follow-Up for All-Cause Mortality, Stroke, and Cancer Incidence and Mortality in the Brusselton Health Study Cohort. So this was one that was uh, written by Dr. Marshall et al., and this was a 20-year follow-up study. So can you tell me a little bit more about this study, please?
1: Right, so this study is probably the oldest study in the group as far as the data was actually collected thirty years ago now over thirty years ago in 1990. And so this was um, this was a small town in Busselton, Australia. So I had to look up Bustleton, Australia, and it's a it looks beautiful. It's a, a seaside <laughs> town on the southwestern side of Australia, sitting on the Indian Ocean, and the population is about twenty five thousand. Um, they have migratory whales there, and they have the, what they're known for is the longest, I think, wooden pier in Australia or something like that. But it looks like a lovely place to go. But at any rate, uh, they had uh, testing, home sleep testing on 400 residents. The, when they started, they were between the ages of 40 and 65. And another, one thing that I found really interesting about this study was they note that they purposely underrepresented women in the study because it was thought to be rare in 1990 that, that women would have sleep apnea. <laughs> there are women in the study, but they were purposely <laughs> underrepresented.
0: Huh. Um,
1: and they were followed for 20 years. And then they looked for hospitalizations, cancer diagnosis, death, uh, coronary artery disease, stroke, and cardiovascular events. The device that they use was a MISAM-4, which, I, again, isn't around anymore. But their scoring was a little bit different on the home sleep test, which I thought was interesting. They used a 3% oxygen desaturation and either a 10-point increase in heart rate or a, quote, burst of snoring to score oh, wow. events. So that was a little bit different from what you we were used to. Um, they ended up having data on 397 residents, 4.6% uh, had moderate to severe apnea, and 20.6% had mild apnea. And when they looked at uh, the moderate to severe apnea, both in the univariate and the multivariate analysis, they showed increased mortality, uh, increased mortality due to cancer, increased cancer diagnoses, and increased stroke and stroke hospitalizations. They did not find increase in cardiovascular disease in that group. Um, and, you know, comparing genders, again, underrepresented females, but mortality was increased in both genders. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I think the commentary even talks about how we've had studies since that time that have drawn similar conclusions about cardiovascular benefit, right? And, and they point their finger at the low adherence. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this was done obviously in beautiful Western Australia, and one day maybe I'll see that pier <laughs> you're yeah, talking right. about.
1: Yeah, um, I kind of wanted to go.
0: Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? We should go now. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think we can generalize that to our population?
1: Yeah, um, I I think looking at their BMIs, they're probably a little lower than the BMIs mm-hmm. that we would see in the U.S. But you know, subsequent data would suggest that this probably is true, um, that moderate severe sleep apnea can increase risk for um, mortality, cancer, stroke. Um, I think the data is pretty clear on that. I think the challenge that we have is we still don't have great data showing that treatment can reverse that increased risk. And, you know, not for lack of trying, but we haven't really <laughs> been able to, to prove that
0: and so is is this something that helps us? I mean, does it help the general public understand why we think treating sleep apnea is so important?
1: well, I think it does in the you know people understand that again, I, I would reiterate, we have to show that treating it helps us, and the challenge, I think, with treatment has always been trying to get patients to be adherent with the tri- treatment that we provide. Mm-hmm. And until we can do that, it's going to be hard to show that we can reverse this. But um, I think if people know that it does impact their health, they are more likely to you know, want to at least get some form of therapy for it
0: and i kind of wonder if maybe our primary care colleagues will will see that there there seems to be a relationship between benefit and adherence too right and they won't just dismiss cpap for example because of some of the recent data that came out
1: yeah i mean we certainly have lots of data that shows cpap helps a lot of right. things it may not we may not have been able to show it reduces mortality um we may not be able to show that it reduces cardiovascular events, but there are a lot of things it does help. <laughs> we do know that, like you know, motor vehicle crashes and sleepiness and time lost at work and things like that.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's a win for us. So let's take a short break. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine.
1: Do you know a sleep champion in your community? Nominate a nonprofit organization for the AASM Foundation's 2021 Sleep Champion Award. Together, we can celebrate better lives through healthier sleep. Details and nomination forms are available at foundation.aasm.org slash champion.
0: Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're celebrating the 15th anniversary of the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine with Editor-in-Chief Dr. Nancy Collip. So let's talk about this final article that you've chosen. Uh, this was about melatonin and natural health products. This was published in 2017 and was written by doctors Erland and Saxena, and it was entitled Melatonin Natural Health Products and Supplements, Pre- Presence of Serotonin and Significant Variability of Melatonin Content. So I remember when this one came out, I-, I talked to a lot of my patients about this. So can you walk us through this article, please? Sure. Um, this was uh, one
1: caveat is this is from Canada. So the actual types of melatonin that are available may be somewhat different in the US, but the findings were pretty striking. So what they sought to do is look at actual melatonin levels in these over-the-counter medications or drugs. And they also did an assay to look to see if serotonin was present. Of course, serotonin can have many adverse side effects. Uh, You can't buy serotonin in stores, but it is part of the melatonin biosynthetic pathway. So um, they looked both for melatonin levels as well as serotonin levels. And um, one thing that you'll notice about melatonin is that it's often mixed in with other formulations. So vitamins and all different kinds of things and it's also sold in a variety of forms, liquids, tablets, capsules, gel caps. And um, in this particular study, they looked at 16 different brands. The other thing they did was looked at like the same brand but different lots, so different lots that came off the line to see if there were inconsistencies amongst lots as well. So there were pretty striking findings, one brand, Uh, was sold as a chewable tablet and a 1.5 milligram dosage actually had almost nine milligrams of melatonin in it. There was 478% increase from what it was advertised. (laughs) Um, The least variable were those that had fewer ingredients. So usually just, you know, the melatonin and whatever was needed to keep the melatonin stable. And those were typically tablets. So they seem to have the least variability. And then eight out of the 30 samples that they looked at had some element of serotonin in them. And these were usually ones that had other ingredients mixed in. Um, There was the most considerable differences were noted with the lower doses, like something that was one milligram or one and a half milligram. Um, And then, of course, in the lots as well, there could be a lot of variability No pun intended. Um, anywhere from 0.37 up to 466% in different lots. And again, even amongst lots, the the tablets seem to be the have the least variability.
0: It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it
1: was it was kind of scary.
0: (laughs) So I have, and I'm sure you do too, more and more patients that are looking for this sort of quote natural treatment. Um, for insomnia, and so does this data make you more or less likely to recommend melatonin to your patients?
1: Well, given this data, what I usually recommend, and again, I practice inside the United States of America, so I am not a hundred percent sure that this uh, is the same here as it was in Canada, but I suspect it's probably pretty similar. And um, you know, I almost always tell people to stay away from the ones that have mixtures and to usually to buy tablets rather than um you know gel or chewies or gummies or things like that um that that's kind of the take-home message that i took i mean you know the whole data around melatonin and when to use it and how much to use is pretty uh soft you know Mm -hmm. we don't have great uh great guidance on that so i will still tell patients to use melatonin, but um, for me, it's usually more when I'm trying to phase advance or phase delay people. I don't usually typically use it for uh, insomnia treatment.
0: Right. And I think uh, Kathy Goldstein had written the commentary, and she made a point of talking about uh, the dosage and the timing of right. of melatonin, I think the timing is really important, and and I think what I've seen is in the formulations that my patients choose, the recommendation on, or at least the directions on the bottle, are to take it right before bed. What do you tell your patients?
1: Yeah, no, never. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I don't use it for treatment for uh, right. insomnia. I, I'm going to use it for, you know, typically phase advance. Phase shift. Sure, yeah. yep. So, yeah, I thought that
0: was a, a really a good point, but. I thought that was a really good point that she brought up. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about this great role that you have being editor of JCSM. Um, I imagine that you get this great sneak peek into emerging science, right? You're kind of ahead of the curve, I'm guessing. And so um, how does it make you shift your practice?
1: Well, I really... Some days, many days, wish I could do this as a full time job, <laughs> because it really <laughs> could be. Um, you got to, you know, we get, you know, manuscripts every day, and even the manuscripts that are are rejected, ha- there's something to learn from all of them. So it would be great to be able to, you know, look at all of those in their entirety, but um, I can't. So, <laughs> so, uh, so. You know, it it is it is an amazing um, role and opportunity to, to pick up on just the wide variety of sleep medicine. Um, and yeah, I, I am I do have the advantage to pick up on, the, you know, the trends earlier than others uh, with this vantage point. And, and it also helps in teaching. And mm-hmm. one thing I'm always uh, <laughs> proud of and amazed about is how often our fellows choose uh JCSM article for their journal clubs, and there's no pressure for them to do so. <laughs> there really isn't, and um, you know, it, it, and they many of them may not even know I'm the editor. I'm not sure, but it, it shows me how relevant the journal is for sleep medicine practice because they find these articles um, relevant for them and and ones that they choose to do their journal club. So,
0: but how interesting that you you made that comment that you. Um, learn even from the ones where the manuscript was rejected?
1: Yes. Uh, and, and from the reviewers too, like, like I try to read, I don't read all the papers. I wish I could, but I don't. <laughs> um, I have a fantastic group of associate editors that help me, but I will look at the, um, the reviews when they come. Cause the, AEs will send me, you know, their recommendation for the paper and the reviews are included. And, and I am amazed at how what a great job some of our reviewers do. And you can learn a lot from, you know, just reading the reviews to like how people analyze papers and, um, you know, the nuances behind uh, those analyses. So um, it's, it's really quite, quite enjoyable.
0: So for those of us who don't publish very much, do you have any advice for how to maybe submit an article and have it have it published in JCSM?
1: Well, you, remember for JCSM you don't really have to be doing NIH funded research. Um, <laughs> we have lots of sections, we have sleep pearls, we have case reports. We're always interested in timely review articles. Um, And I also want to highlight, we have a REM section that's really trying to target, you know, people just starting out in sleep medicine, sleep fellows, or even residents that are interested in doing sleep medicine or young faculty. There's uh, opportunities for them to get involved. So, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, randomized control trials to get in our our journal. There's lots of opportunities, and I would encourage people to look at the website, um, which was recently upgraded, um, and you know information for authors to look at the different types of articles that uh, we accept. And again, would really encourage people if they're interested in you know being reviewers um, to get involved that way. Where always looking for reviewers (laughs) Um, always and if you're interested in being a reviewer it's as simple as just contacting the journal office and sending us your cv and um you know we're we're almost always if you're in any way involved in sleep medicine to add you on as a reviewer because that's that's one of the biggest challenges for the journal is to try to get um get good competent timely reviews
0: that's fantastic advice. So, so go to the website, learn about the different sections, and uh, volunteer and become a reviewer then, right?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much for putting this collection together and really for your leadership of the journal. Uh, we appreciate the, you taking the time to tell us about your work at JCSM and for walking us through these publications. Congratulations for achieving this impressive milestone and for spending time with us today.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, You should be looking for this online somewhere in the middle of January or the 13th, 14th, 15th, something like that. You should have access to it.
0: That sounds perfect. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at AASM.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.